Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News, the podcast of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, or IEMA. We provide support, training and professional development for more than 18,000 environment and sustainability professionals in more than 115 countries worldwide. We also work with our members to develop policy at a national, regional and international level. Last October, before the COP26 climate change talks in Glasgow, we conducted a survey that had perhaps surprising results, given the fact we were still very much in the grip of a worldwide pandemic. It emerged that climate change was the second most important concern for those who were questioned just behind the economy. This result was part of a suite of opinion polls taken around this time, which gave similar results both in the UK and other countries. And the recently published UK Climate Change Risk Assessment provides evidence that such concern may well be justified. By 2045, the assessment concludes the cost of climate change to the UK could be at least 1% of GDP. Now, it could be argued that this momentum gives policymakers a greater opportunity to concentrate on the policies and skills needed to drive a zero-carbon economy. However, we've also seen evidence that some people are becoming fearful and anxious about the future, even to the extent that they feel any action they might take will make little difference given our current global trajectory. So in this first Greening the News episode of 2022, when many of us will have had at least one resolution around sustainability, we're asking, how can you make a difference? And what are the things you can do towards a more sustainable life? Well, in a moment, I'll be talking to two experts with some fresh and original views on how we can start to make the change we want to see. But first, here's Andre Farah with his roundup of the environmental headlines. The warming Arctic is not only measured in the rising temperatures, but also in rapidly changing habitats. Downy birch is a hardy tree that defines the tree line in the Arctic, and as winter conditions warm, the birch is on the move, northwards and uphill. Ben Rawlance, in his book Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth, bears witness to the rolling impact of climate change on the life of the Sami and their reindeer herds. A world away from the poignancy of the description of changing habitats and the impact on traditional ways of life, the chief executive of BlackRock, the world's biggest investment fund manager, Larry Fink, underlines that effective climate policies are about continued profitability. In his annual letter to chief executives, he lays claim to sustainability as a pillar of capitalism and continued profitability. He sees a future in which new startups and innovators will drive the world to decarbonise. For the Sami, their reindeer and their Arctic home, that future can't come soon enough. Protected areas and national parks have been the focus of policies to protect 30% of land and the oceans by 2030. Though this is likely to form a cornerstone of an agreement for nature at the Convention on Biological Diversity, COP15, at Kunming in China later this year, there are warnings that on its own, and if effectively implemented, it might slow the loss of biodiversity, but much more is needed to deliver a recovery. The measures needed to tackle biodiversity crisis are complex and interlinked, and can suffer from an overfocus on individual elements. In an analysis of the draft UN agreement, 
a group of leading scientists is clear that boosting protected areas is necessary, but is only one part of a mix of measures, including tackling the perverse impacts of agriculture and fishing subsidies, doubling down on hitting the goal of global heating to 1.5 degrees centigrade, and tackling human overconsumption, especially the levels of meat consumption. The message is unambiguous. The four horsemen of the environmental apocalypse hunt as a team. Effective regulation is a foundation for protecting and improving our environment. In this context, concern is building that England's Environment Agency is struggling to deliver frontline investigation of pollution incidents, announcing recently that it would no longer investigate lower levels of incidents. Despite commitments to increase penalties and get tough with polluters, reports of reduced funding for frontline services must remain a concern against a backdrop of growing public anxiety at the state of our rivers and the water environment. Last year, over one million people took part in the annual RSPB Big Garden Birdwatch, a testament to the value of nature around us as well as we all struggled through the COVID pandemic. This year, the event takes place over the weekend of the 29th to the 30th of January, and it'll be interesting to see how many people take part. Thanks, Andre. Well, I'm delighted to say we have two guests this month who know all about how small lifestyle changes can make a big difference. Jen Gale is author of the Sustainable-ish Living Guide and the Sustainable-ish Guide to Green Parenting. She runs courses and a website supporting others on their sustainability journey. Ben Knight is a full member of IEMA and Head of Sustainability at Go Cardless, one of whose recent blogs is rather intriguingly entitled, All I Want for Christmas is a Gabonese Forest Elephant. Interesting. <laughs> so let's put the elephant, let's take the elephant out of the room, Ben, to begin with, and maybe start with you and ask a little bit about what you think we can do. I mean, everybody's talking about it now. How can I live more sustainably? How can I be have a lower impact on the planet? And will the things that I do make any difference in the long run? Thanks, Sarah. And uh, thank you for the invite. And thanks for having me today. And um, yeah, I think it's interesting because I think Ago Cardis at the moment, uh, we're starting off the year, well, kind of how we, we finished last year with um, a bit of a focus on individual action. And one of our main outcomes of our sustainability survey to our staff was that people were really pleased to see what we we're doing as a business, but they wanted to know what they can do in their personal lives, which is really interesting. I think something that we're doing at the moment is actually called the Couch to Carbon Zero Sprint, which is with, uh, with an external organization. And I think the whole ethos of that is that no, no matter what you do, if you take those those small steps, I think we mentioned the idea of your small changes can make a big difference. I think that's the most important thing is, is just making a start and, and doing something and having that, you know, that, that, that conscious thought of I'm going to try and make changes. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to go for the big things, you know, ripping out your gas boiler and getting a heat pump tomorrow, but you know, those small changes over time can kind of really make a big difference. And I guess looking at it in the same way as a, a corporate sense, you know, how can you look to reduce your, you know, if you're talking about your emissions, how can you reduce your own personal emissions over the next five to 10 years? And then how can you almost then get that even further in the next, 15, 20, in the same way that businesses might talk about net zero and things. And Jen, I mean, your website, you really do make this point, don't you, that you know, it does seem insurmountable sometimes. It, the changes we have to make are so huge, but actually 
just starting, just with those baby steps, you can begin to make a difference to your personal carbon footprint. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so important that we really emphasise the fact that it's okay to do these things imperfectly. And I think that you know, the point you're saying about it feels really overwhelming. And I use a, a sort of, you know, a marathon analogy that if someone came to me and said, you know, you're going to run a marathon tomorrow, I'd be like, uh, no, I'm not, you know, when I'm sat on the couch eating, uh, finishing up the Christmas chocolates. But actually, if they said to me, you're going to run a marathon, and you're going to run it um, in September, and I'm going to hold your hand all the way through, and we're going to have a structured plan that works us from, um, Ben talked about couch to couch to carbon zero, couch to 26 miles or whatever. First thing we need to do is have a look in the cupboard and see if you've got a pair of trainers in there. You know, suddenly you're like, actually, I can do this. And come September, you find yourself running a marathon that you never in a million years thought you'd be able to do. And, and Ben was exactly right saying that this idea that the, the first step is the hardest change. Uh, lots of these things are habit change. And as humans, we don't, we're hardwired to, to resist change. So that can be really difficult. But once you've done those small changes, and I really sort of advocate the low hanging fruit first, because they give you that momentum to then go on and do some of the things that might be a bit trickier. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I don't want to overextend this kind of New Year resolution Christmas analogy, but um, a lot of people, I mean, I can't remember, I think it is three weeks at the normal New Year's resolutions start to finish. And, you know, we all get our brand new trainers at the beginning of the year and think, yeah, that's it. You know, I'll be running marathons by April. And then come January, it's a bit cold and wet. And you think, oh, well, do you know what? There's Strictly's on the telly. Let's just watch that instead. And before too long, it's a dim and distant memory. I mean, do you think there is an analogy? And how do you push through that if you're going for sustainable living? Uh, Jen, maybe you first. Whenever I do you know, I run some courses and things like that. And the first thing I sort of start with most of the time is this kind of why as to why is this important to you? Because if we can really drill down into that and use that to remind ourselves of why this is important, it's actually a really good motivator. Like one of the things that I've been trying to do since last summer is to do a lot of the smaller journeys by walking or cycling. And a friend got in touch this morning and said, do you want to come around for coffee? And I was like, oh yeah, lovely. And then I was like, oh, I, I really feel like I'm going to have to cycle and it's so cold. And, it, you know, it was very much the last thing I wanted to do. But actually, the push for me was actually I'm nagging my kids the whole time. Actually, no, we're going to walk into town or we're going to do this and we're, we're going to bike there. And then actually for me to just jump in the car when they're not there feels really hypocritical. So I feel like, you know, there's that as well. Being, being seen to sort of walk the walk, even when nobody's looking, is quite important. <laughs> and Ben, I mean, and we've all done it when we've had New Year's resolutions. This sort of, oh dear, do you know what? Den makes a really good point that nobody's watching. The people I tell to do this aren't here. Maybe I could just get away with doing it. I mean, do you have any kind of life hacks to help us over those humps when maybe it's not as easy when your willpower begins to fade a little? Yeah, like, I guess, I mean, if your job title has sustainability in it, you're held to account a little bit more. I think Jen, you mentioned, I, I'm just looking up your book on green parenting. I think kids are probably you know, one of those great checkers. You know, my, I've got a seven-year-old and a one-year-old. and My daughter will always question as you know, why are we doing X and why are we doing Z and can't we do more and things like that. And, uh, and I think that idea of starting with why is really, you know, really important. So telling that story of why it's important and that, that generally then gets you over a lot of those humps. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I do appreciate it. it can be difficult in the same way of, you know, going back to the marathon analogy but i think one of the things that and this analogy that i think really sums it up and this is not mine by any chance i probably heard this at a conference a few years ago but it's don't let the perfect get in the way of the good and i think that kind of really sums up 
that idea of action that no one has all the answers, whether that's you as an individual or a business, no one has all the answers right now, but it's again, taking those first steps and learning as you go and being honest with yourself, or if you're a business, being honest as a business about the challenges you're facing and you know, sort of reviewing it as you go. And I think that's, that's really key being honest with yourself and others about what you're doing really. It's interesting. I wondered actually whether, because both of you are very active in Webiverse and social media as well, whether you think that's a help or a hindrance? Because on one hand, you, you get lots of really good advice and there's a bit of a, you know, we're all in similar space sometimes and trying to meet our sustainability goals. But on the other, as Jen said, you know, it's very easy to see a lot of people who are who don't have a car, they're walking everywhere, they're really reducing their, you know, they have no waste you know, they're recycling everything or it's going to compost and to feel, oh, I just, I'm just so far away from that. I don't know quite how I'm going to get there. So, so do you think you can use social media as a tool to good in your sustainability journey? Uh, Jen, I wonder if I could start with you. Yeah, definitely. It's very much a double-edged sword, isn't it? And I'm always really aware of the preaching to the choir and all that kind of thing. But I mean, I've got a big Facebook group with nearly 18,000 people in it. And inevitably, the most vocal people on there are the people who have done the most. And I think they're certainly on social media. I talk a lot about this element, the sort of the big green bashy stick, you know, so if someone says, oh, can somebody recommend a, a vegetarian recipe, you know, oh, well, why aren't you vegan or why, you know, and so I talk a lot about this quite openly in the group in, you know, really talking about this idea of being kind, let's all encourage each other. The whole idea of sort of sustainable-ish that I talk about is that we're all going to have our own challenges and our own different circumstances that mean that our okay is somebody else's like, yeah, and the other way around and that, you know, that's that's all right. But we need to be really, really aware of that, I think. And, and especially now we're moving to a point where we really need to start getting everybody on board so it needs to be seen as this very accessible space and so I think talking about the ish talking about the imperfections you know I've run courses before that have been beginners air quotes beginners courses because but even then I'm amazed and I say to people right just brainstorm a list in two minutes of the things you've already done because you will have already done some things and they'll come going oh I haven't done anything and I'm really embarrassed and they probably list 20 things that they've already done so I think a lot of us are already much further on than we think but as you say there's that sort of comparisonitis which I think can be quite dangerous so I'm always really open as Ben said about the my perceived failings. Um, you know, I think one of the most popular blog posts I ever wrote was 10 things I still do that make me a really crap environmentalist. And I think we need to kind of own it. <laughs> yes, I think we'd all write one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine probably be more like 40. <laughs> but, um, so Ben, I mean, this point about social media, it can be a massive tool for good. But do you think there's a danger that sometimes it can be putting people off? I mean, to Jen's point that actually it's... There's, there's so much on there that can get a bit competitive in this space that if you're not careful, there are people in the middle, people maybe just kind of dipping their toe in sustainability who just think, do you know what, not for me, I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, definitely. I think, I guess in the same way that with any sort of forms of media or communications, it's about how you use it and and the right way to get the message across without bombarding people or, or lecturing and I guess trying to add value in some way to your intended audience so we something we did just before christmas actually which aima helped us out with on one of our um, days we did a 12 gifts for climate action which was basically a social media campaign where we tried to give 
away loads of tools and resources to other businesses and SMEs and things like that. And the whole idea of that was it wasn't really about talking at all about what we're doing as businesses, about how can we help out the SMEs who don't measure their emissions or how can we help uh, other businesses upskill and things like that. So that was a really positive campaign. But then you're right on the other side is that if we just, I guess if we were just constantly posting about you know, oh, here's our fantastic net zero strategy without anything that people can take out of that as value, people probably become a bit, I, I guess, switched off to it. And uh, and I guess on the other side of that, you get the, you know, a lot of uh, greenwashing, I guess, um, which, which is always uh, an issue where you, you see a lot of claims made and whether that's in, you know, again, standard media or, or social media, which don't really have that much um, value behind it. And then also on the, the flip side of that is a phrase that I learned recently is green hushing, where you get businesses that are doing so much on, on sustainability that they don't actually have time to talk about it and post it instantly, which is, which is really interesting as well. So I think, I think it is a really good tool because it gives you that reach to different audiences, but it's just got to be you know, managed carefully. And, and again, going back to what Jen said, you know, honestly, really uh, being honest about things. Yeah, I wonder if I could just develop that point about greenwashing because you know there'll be, I mean, without wishing to leap uh, feet first into the whole kind of meat no meat vegan debate, but we've seen an awful lot of advertising recently. Uh, Veganuary, I mean, obviously, which, which started as very much a grass movement, roots movement, but there are some commentators saying, "Well, hang on, this is just." processed food a lot of it is processed food that happens to be vegan and maybe not driving the right the, the right behaviors but on the other hand it's a stepping stone others will say well it's a stepping stone to maybe reducing some meat in your diet i mean do you find as a head of sustainability that it's easy for some companies to maybe greenwash themselves without really thinking about the consequences without going back to basics and and thinking through their systems as you know as IEMA members we would uh, suggest and encourage them to do yeah i think sometimes the problem can be as well is that sometimes there's especially last year with cop26 there's a lot of focus on carbon which you know is right because i guess climate is probably the in terms of the, the priority list but then you also the other elements of sustainability whether you're talking about biodiversity or communities or economic sustainability they're all interconnected and i think sometimes what can happen with a business is that you know we're talking about the idea of meat free and, and things like that that there might be so much focus on we need to decarbonize but then what are then the the follow-on impacts of that um you know, so i think sometimes it, it can be difficult for a business to think holistically about everything but i think it is probably really important as well because sometimes what might be or what might seem the right choice in terms of this is going to straight away help us decarbonize it might not necessarily have the right impact elsewhere. And a really good example of this that I, I heard about recently speaking to the Woodland Trust was there's a huge amount of cliche around businesses saying, if you buy this product from us, from us, we'll plant a tree on your behalf. But then the problem is, is that's become so cliched and it's what are you planting? Where are you planting it? What's the impact on biodiversity and communities? And and in effect, although you're, you're trying to sell a positive message about climate, in the long term, you could create a more problems by trying to do that good so i think sometimes it's just it's difficult but it's just thinking about everything more holistically um which is easier said than done uh, of course <laughs> and exactly and that's kind of the point isn't it really that actually this is it's a very complex landscape um, jen I'll, i'd be interested to know your views on cop 26 because i think this is a really good example of dominating the headlines because it was in the uk in the uk we, we pretty much had wall-to-wall -wall headlines. I mean, again, 
bearing in mind we were in the middle of a pandemic, there was a lot of coverage. Do you think that that had any relevance or, or resonance for the people that you work with and you support for the for the courses you run? Did that have any cut through in terms of having a more sustainable life? I think the best thing that came out of it, certainly from a kind of lay perspective, was that almost wall-to-wall media coverage was the fact that climate was headlines on the you know BBC homepage for two weeks or whatever it was and that actually it gave people that excuse or that sort of stepping stone to be able to have a conversation with their family or their peers about it because even as someone and I don't know if you guys find this but as someone who this is my job this is what I do I will happily come on a podcast I will you know present to people I still find those day-to-day conversations with mums in the playground with you know going to stay at family members houses and they've got all their lights left on and things like that it's really difficult and but actually you know being able to say oh gosh did you you know there was some amazing programming from um, the BBC and others that were sort of around at the time as well and, and to be able to say oh gosh did you see x y and z or actually did you see that headline and i'm feeling quite concerned about this how are you feeling about it without being seen the you know the the sort of person who people cross the road to avoid because you're carrying a a plastic bag that kind of thing but it gave people that license almost to talk about this and that's definitely one of the most powerful things that we can do i think as individuals and as businesses is to be talking about this and talking about solutions in a very non-judgmental sort of accessible way and I think that's one of the the best outcomes that I saw for COP definitely. Talking about that kind of community approach with my mum was a a single parent for a lot of my life so I was brought up most of my young life by my nan. My my mum worked and she was a wartime housewife and everything got used you know there was no food waste she made her own clothes you know and if you grew you just got a slightly different coloured helmet put on the bottom of a dress and all this kind of stuff that today suddenly has become super relevant and you know you've got very fashionable people under 30 doing exactly those sort of things and we're talking a lot about food waste I mean is there an opportunity we do sometimes say that we're quite atomized as a society that we don't have much intergenerational conversations I mean is it something that we could think about maybe involving older generations in because this is exactly you know they did it because you know there just wasn't there wasn't the resource that we have today yeah definitely and you know my sort of whole journey started when we spent a year buying nothing new and it's the 10 year anniversary of that this year so I'm doing the same again this year but and I called the original one my make do and mend year and it was that kind of harking back to you know that era where things were seen as precious commodities and we very much mended and repaired and all that sort of thing and I think there's definitely a big upsurge in interest in repair and, you know, this idea, you know, we've now rebranding things as sort of circular economy and things like that. But when you look at projects like repair cafes, so these are um, sort of volunteer run pop up events, they tend to be where there'll be volunteer fixers on hand to um, mend your textiles or your small electronics and things like that. And often they will be slightly older people in society who have those skills. And there's definitely that sort of passing on of skills to be done. And I know that there's a brilliant project in Edinburgh called the Edinburgh Tool Library, and they have a, a mentoring project there where they take a you know an older person w- within the community to mentor a younger person who maybe is out of work or looking for work and upskilling and that sort of thing. And so there's definitely a lot of skills that we can um, 
and things that we can learn from older generations and from people in the community. Bit, bit like gin went right out of fashion in the 70s and is now right back. <laughs> Certainly my Christmas is anything to go by. I don't think we need anyone to help us with our gin appreciation, though, do we? It seems to come quite naturally. <laughs> Certainly gin, if I was anything, my Christmas was anything to go by. <laughs> um, ben, sorry, you were to say something? Um, no, I was just going to really just um, agree with um, the, the point on you know, bringing in other generations so my my mum and dad are actually both born at the tail end of the second world war and it's funny when i talk to them about things like the circular economy they, they say well we've been doing that all our life you know they they're always repairing everything and reusing everything and and um and i kind of see that across my community so i live in a small village but i, I volunteer for my local council and the I, I guess it's easy to say that i'm definitely the youngest person probably ever been in that council but in the in the local community we've got lots of groups sharing tools or sharing food and things like that which is which is great and i think even in our in our local bus stop we've got a um a bookstore where people put books that they finish with they put the, the books in there and other people can collect them so i think at that sort of you know, community level i think you know, the whole idea of circularity is really again starting to take on and i but i think it's really important that you bring it in all age ranges you know, again my my seven-year-old is really keen on it as are and my mum and dad have been doing it all their life so i think bringing on board everyone to do that is, is is quite important. Perhaps in the last few minutes, talk about something else that we haven't mentioned thus far, and that is, of course, the pandemic. Um, I mean, certainly at IEMA, we have dispensed with our office. We're now working digitally and thinking about how we can work collaboratively, uh, effectively with, without an office. And I think most members of the team have found the online experience uh, a surprisingly good one. Ben, I wonder if I could perhaps start with you and ask whether you think that you know the way we had to move very, very quickly in the pandemic for very different ways of working has perhaps supported us to live, um, in, certainly in business terms, a more sustainable life. I think I think what it shows is that when, um, to, to paraphrase a, a phrase I heard um, in 2020, I think it shows that occasionally a big oil tanker can be turned around. You know, either businesses can change the way they work when they need to. I think, especially in the context of of, of business and, and specifically on climate action, I think it's it's quite clear that that needs to happen. I mean, something that we're developing at the moment is our our net zero strategy, which is absolutely we've, we've aligned with the, the science based targets. So there's obviously a lot of work that goes into that, and even for us as you know, a mostly sort of digital organisation, there's still things that we need to consider as the business scales so where are people going to be working how are they going to be you know are they working in offices working at home i think interesting as well that switch from office work into home working has actually increased the emissions for a lot of businesses because people were at home using gas boilers rather than being in a nicely air-conditioned office um so i think but i i think it kind of shows that it, it can happen but i think also it it has to happen um i think in the business context for a business to be sustainable i.e. they want to exist in the next 10 20 30 years they have to really work at working with their supply chains their employees and their and their customers because if they don't then if those stakeholders aren't sustainable then they won't be as sustainable as business themselves so i think it has to happen and hopefully it it will happen with the speed that it needs to as well Thanks, Ben. And Jen, I mean, of course, when we say it's changed a lot of people's lives, of course, for many people, it didn't change at all. If you were working in a supermarket or working in delivery or frontline forces, health service, armed forces, police, you know, there are a lot of people who who had the same life as they did 
before the pandemic. But having said that, do you think there are lessons that we have learned towards a more sustainable life from the way we've been living over the last 18 months? Definitely. I think Ben made the point that prior to the pandemic, I think a lot of businesses would have said, oh, absolutely no way can we do that meeting over Zoom or, you know, we really need to be meeting in person and that kind of thing. And then actually it because they were forced to, it sort of proved that it could be done and that it was as productive or possibly even more so. But I I think in terms of, I mentioned earlier about this idea that, you know, habits are difficult to change and a lot of what we need from individuals and, uh, you know, and from us as consumers is that sort of behaviour change. And so when we think about something like mask wearing, I mean, I remember at the start of the pandemic and um, a friend in Germany saying, well, we just have to, we're, we're wearing masks everywhere and thinking there is not a chance that the British public will tolerate that in any way, shape or form. And here we all are wearing masks. And um, so I think it's it does show that when the messaging is very clear and unambiguous coming from uh, the, the government and that you get that um, sort of social buy-in and you reach those, I'm sure we've all experienced a thing at the moment where you sort of, you go into an area and and you're like, oh, I don't know if I really ought to be wearing a mask in here or not. And you're quite happy to wear a mask, but no one else is wearing a mask. So you then don't put yours on or vice versa. And it's that sort of, so that almost that social contract, I guess, isn't it? But that can change really quickly as well. So I think there's a lot to be learned from it. And it definitely does prove that we can change what we what we feel is non-negotiable, completely undoable. And suddenly we're, oh, we're doing it. And then maybe it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. <laughs> Jen and Ben, thank you so much. I mean, it's been real pleasure to talk to both of you over the last uh, 25 minutes or so. Um, I think you knew this, surely, I'm sure, was coming down the track. But I wonder if I could ask both of you for the three things that you would do if you were starting the journey or maybe if you were kind of, you know, more than a green than a yellow belt in terms of your sustainability. Uh, Jen, I wonder if I could start with you. What are the three things that you would encourage us all to do? Um, I think definitely we're all really aware of this messaging around food and reducing meat and dairy. So Meat Free Monday, absolutely brilliant place to start. You know, full disclaimer, we're not vegan. We're working our way to being vegetarian. But also the other message that I don't think is is heard quite so much around food is food waste. So trying to reduce, look at what your food waste is and trying to reduce that. That can be a hugely powerful thing to do. Second thing and This is probably one of those things that lots of us, well, I don't even know if lots of us are aware of, but certainly moving our money is hugely powerful. And it's one of those things that we do it once and it's done. But a lot of our money might be being invested in um, fossil fuels and things that we wouldn't dream of investing in. So it's probably one of those slightly onerous, sensible, grown up things to do. But it's a really, really hugely positive place to start. And then I think the other thing that I would really encourage people to do is and I'm bound to say this, that, you know, redoing our year buying nothing new, but is to just think about how you can slow down your consumption a little bit. Can you keep things in use for a little bit longer? Can you find someone who can teach you how to patch that hole in the pair of jeans? Um, you know, challenge yourself. Could you do a month buying just only things secondhand and see how you get on? Yeah, my nan had a sewing machine, which she had for 55 years, and it's still going. I have to say, I don't use it all the time, but it's still going. And pensions, as you said, you know, ask your pension providers about ethical funds and things like that. Thank you so much. Uh, ben, I mean, from a business point of view, if you're you know, working in a large firm or maybe running your own, what are the three top things on your checklist? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I completely agree agree with you Jen on, on the moving your money thing that's something on my list for this week by the way so um amazing yeah but I think uh, from a business I would probably say 
just take that first step and start, uh, which, you know, what does that mean? I'd probably say, especially in climate action, probably the first thing they can do is, is look at measuring their emissions and, uh, which sounds like a really big challenge, but there's, there's a lot of tools and resources out there to help you do that. I mean, we actually just published a free to use calculator for SMEs last year. So I think that's a really important step because a lot of businesses, if they measure their only, you know, their immediate emissions, they might think they're, they're putting out X when really, if they look at their whole value chain, they'll realize, oh my goodness, they, 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 this is our mission. So I think measuring is really important. And then obviously then looking to reduce those emissions as much as you can uh, and, and as quickly as you can. But I think probably, um, you know, aside from that, as well, I think collaborating, I think is really important. Collaborating with other businesses, collaborating with your employees, um, your, your supply chain, your partners, because no one, whether you're a business or an individual or an individual can get to net zero by themselves because we're all interconnected and we're all dependent on each other. And I'd probably just say to as a 3.1 on that as well, please make sure you're considering biodiversity and communities in that as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. From very, very quick question before we go, we always ask our guests this, optimistic or pessimistic for the future? Jen? Oh, I think you have to say optimistic, don't you? Because otherwise none of us would get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Funnily enough, most people do, but no pressure there, Ben. <laughs> so, Ben? <laughs> yeah, no, optimistic as well. Brilliant. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks so much indeed, Ben Knight and Jen Gale. So that's all we've got time for in this edition of Greening the News. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you found the tips and hints and the conversation as uh, interesting and intriguing as as I did. Please do join us next month. And in the meantime, I hope you have a very happy and a very healthy start to your 2022. 